Stanford University. I am uh, very pleased to welcome you to the 43rd annual Carlos Kelly McClatchy Symposium, supported by a lecture fund established by the late Jim McClatchy. I would also like to especially thank Susan McClatchy, who is here this evening and who has been a longtime supporter of our department. I would also like to thank Phil Taubman, formerly of the New York Times, who is now a professor here at Stanford, who was absolutely the key to putting this together, um, with an able assist from uh, Ann Grimes, who directs our journalism program, and who, who helped us do this as well. I'm Jim Fishkin, the chair of the Department of Communication. This uh, symposium will be uh, recorded and available on uh, YouTube and various digital um, formats. The ever unfolding economic crisis is a challenge for the media as well as for the country. And so I'm going to say a few words about that just to set the stage for the discussion. Uh, there are some obvious reasons why this story is uh, almost unprecedented. Uh, I can think of six, and I'm sure our panelists who have struggled with it can probably add to the list. But the ones that occur to me are, first, it is mind-numbing in its complexity. Who understands credit default swaps, collateralized debt obligations, the roles of the SEC, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury, the FDIC, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, the rating agencies, Moody's, Standard & Poor's, the Justice Departments, the State Attorney Generals, the changing political landscape, the implications of bankruptcy for the auto companies, the TARP, the stimulus packages, the stress tests, the mortgage modifications, the list goes on and on. Warren Buffett famously called derivatives, quote, financial weapons of mass destruction, unquote. They are also weapons of mass distraction in that no one in the public understands them, but we are all apparently living with some of their effects. Second challenge, this uh, crisis is ferocious in its effects on ordinary people and their communities. Rising unemployment, closed businesses, foreclosed homes, strained state budgets, devastated endowments for foundations, charities, and yes, universities, and disappearing corporate icons from Wall Street to Main Street, from Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers to Circuit City. Third, it is gigantic in its scale, gigantic. To put just the government response in perspective, Bloomberg recently calculated, to my amazement anyway, that the U.S. government and Federal Reserve have spent, lent, or committed $12.8 trillion, trillion dollars, an amount that just about equals the total GDP of the United States, total, uh, which is uh, $13 trillion last year. And according to data from the Federal Reserve, household wealth in the United States peaked at $64.5 trillion, that's wealth, in 2007, went down to $51.5 trillion at the end of 2008. Again, $13 trillion, exactly. But this time, not government expenditures or commitments, but 
wealth that just vanished, just vanished in only a year. To paraphrase an old saying, $13 trillion here, $13 trillion there, and pretty soon you're talking about real money. Fourth, there are big interests at stake, both corporate and political, thus engaging big interest efforts to persuade lobbyists, PR firms, the whole toolkit of advocacy engaged on behalf of conflicting interests. These efforts are intended to influence the dialogue and decisions, and they can also reveal information through strategic leaks and planted stories, complicating the role of the media in reporting on it for the public. Fifth, public understanding is actually crucial for any sustainable response. While public polls indicate that the public's arrived at a rudimentary understanding of what is going on, who the major players are, what they are basically trying to do. Rudimentary may not be good enough when our collective political will and the stock market from day to day uh, depends on what the public knows and has confidence in. Sixth, this is my last, it is diffuse in whom to hold accountable. We are in effect slapped by the invisible hand the invisible hand, instead of serving the uh, community's welfare, has, uh, seems to have done this, given our collective faith in markets. But there are few fingerprints on whom to hold accountable. Who do you blame? Insurance companies, banks, regulators, hedge funds, rating agencies, mortgage brokers, the alternative banking system. There's no obvious villain, no Bernie Madoff, on whom to pin the overall financial crisis or its interactions with a severe recession. And there's a difference between the financial crisis and the recession and then how the two work together. And despite public suspicions, most anyone who made a small fortune from this crisis probably started out with a big one. The press is supposed to offer an independent arena of accountability, a checking value on powerful actors and interests. But how can it serve us on such a story with these six challenges? A few questions. Did the media fail to provide enough accountability before the bubble burst? Was it too close in perspective to the corporations, political actors, and regulators it covers? Is it now too easily distracted by tabloid populist impulses directed at corporate compensation, or at government intervention itself? Are we watching for private jet flying executives and a few bonuses while missing the big picture? Now, we have here tonight the best of the best in the press, in the tradition of the McClatchy Symposium. And this best of the best have struggled with these issues, either covering or editing, or certainly have all have long experience with it in alphabetical order, and maybe they will offer their opening statements in alphabetical order. We have Diana Enriquez, who is senior financial writer for the New York Times. She's covered Enron, 
Now Bernie Madoff, and in between she broke this um, in insurance scandal for military personnel, which had a big impact. And she is the author of Fidelity's, two books at least, Fidelity's World and the White Sharks of Wall Street. Alan Murray is the executive editor for the Wall Street Journal Online and deputy managing editor of the Wall Street Journal. And previously, he was a regular contributor to CNBC, among many other roles. He's the author of several books, including Revolt in the Boardroom, The New Rules of Power in Corporate America, and Showdown at Gucci Gulch, Lawmakers, Lobbyists, and the Unlikely Triumph of Tax Reform. Stephen Perlstein writes a column on business and the economy that's published twice weekly in the Washington Post. In 2008, Perlstein received the Pulitzer Prize for commentary for, quote, his insightful columns that explore the nation's complex economic ills with masterful clarity, unquote. That's a wonderful description. Stephen Shepard is the founding dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York. From 1984 to 2005, for 20 years, he was the editor-in-chief of Business Week, the largest business magazine in the world. Prior to that, he was senior editor for National Affairs at Newsweek and editor of the Saturday Review. So he combines many years of high editorial responsibility with the distance of an academic perspective on this current crisis and how it has been covered. So with four distinguished panelists, the plan is that each of you should speak for from five to seven minutes drawing on your own experience, hopefully offering some more general reflections on some of the above, and then we'll open it up to questions from the floor, and we will try in the new digital age to capture all of this for an online audience. Diana? Thank you so much, Jim. It's such a pleasure to be here and to see all of you here. Um, I'm, I'm going to try not to be defensive and not to be uh, um, uh, too um, self-flagellating either. Uh, as we were saying at dinner, journalists are never satisfied with the with the work they did. The people who have a the people who are easily satisfied with what they do wash out of this profession fairly early. Um, so, you know, I, my short answer to did we do enough is well, clearly not because we're asking that question. But rather than point back at what we might have done better, what we might have done more of, what we might have uh, done differently. I'd like to at least start us out by looking a little bit more in a forward direction. The uh, six facets of this crisis that Jim explored uh, are not all, from my perspective, with due respect, as critical to the media's ability to do its job uh, as others are. The scale of this financial crisis, uh, you know, makes it more uh, more necessary that we be sure we've got the B instead of the M and billion and the T instead of the B and trillion. But, you know, from the standpoint of covering it, that scale um, doesn't really impact on, the, doesn't really affect um, the the role of the journalist. Um, nor does the uh, the diffusion, the widely, uh, uh, widely spread uh, impact. Uh, of the of the crisis, um, you know, certainly no, most news organizations are set up with a broad spectrum of beats. You know, we're we're, we're designed uh, around the idea that news happens on a lot of fronts at the same time. So, 
uh, while it, heaven knows it's been tiring. You know, all leaves canceled until further notice since last September. Um, I likened it sort of going to work every day and standing in front of a fire hose all day and then going to bed and coming back and doing it all over again. Uh, but, but we're designed to do it this way. We have uh, areas of expertise. We have editors uh, overseeing pods of people whose uh, uh, areas of expertise match uh, pretty nicely what's been going on. And where we haven't, uh, we've been able to shift and, and, uh, uh, and cope. So uh, we had had a commodities beat that uh, went dark for a number of years because there wasn't much happening in that area until last year. And then we were able to throw some, uh, some people at it who had covered it from various aspects before. So that isn't a big problem. The, uh, the personal impact it's having on our readers is a boon to us because it elevates their level of interest. It level elevates uh, the sense of, uh, of, of importance that we all feel in the, in the necessity to do our jobs better. So the one thing, of the one of the facets that Jim cited that makes this crisis uh, so unusual that really has been a challenge is its complexity. The, uh, the diverse and, and eye-crossingly uh, complicated financial engineering and financial products uh, that have became the hallmark of the last 15 years on Wall Street have really come home to roost. And the, the challenge of trying to translate uh, that complexity uh, in, uh, for a now wide, broad, deeply passionately interested general audience is perhaps the most significant challenge I think that this uh, crisis poses for the media exclusively. But it's, was it Rahm Emanuel who said, you know, let, go into, no good crisis go to waste? Well, let's not let this one go to waste as journalists. And I'd like to just quickly suggest some very practical lessons that I think that everybody who cares about the media, and particularly everybody who works in the media, ought to take uh, from, uh, from the coverage we've done so far and what remains to be done. First of all, I think we have been far too narrow in our definitions of markets, and we have failed to educate the American public about the broad spectrum of markets that it needs to know about. Um, you know, most Americans did not know this crisis was happening until it hit the stock market, when in fact it hit the credit markets fully a year earlier. And if, if we had trained the American public to monitor the bond markets as carefully as we trained them to monitor the stock markets, if, if the little blips and the treasury rates were on the screen of CNBC right next to the Dow Jones, then those danger signals would have perhaps gained more attention earlier. So I think one lesson we need to take out of this is it's the markets, stupid. You really need to cover them all. The shadow markets as well, the over-the-counter markets for derivatives, for credit default swaps, for um, uh, the uh, various uh, esoteric uh, creations that uh, became so problematic. Those trade. It's a market. It's as dark as the market for over-the-counter stocks was 40 years ago. But hey, we brought that market into the light, and we can bring these into the light as well. So. I think we need to pay more attention to a broader spectrum of markets. Second, I think we need to watch the watchdogs better. Um, uh, I, uh, I think many agencies, many news organizations did a very good job monitoring the great shift towards a deregulatory 
mentality, but we could have done more, we could have done better. And what we needed was not philosophical measurements, but metrics. We should have focused more on caseload, enforcement actions, priorities, budgets, personnel, ways to measure what was happening on the regular, regulatory scene apart from ideological or philosophical measurements. Finally, I think um, it was important that it's important that we learn that we need to fight issue fatigue uh, in this area. Um, you know, if you, if you look at some of these topics, particularly Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, for example, we've been covering those for a long, long time. And when something new comes up, it's kind of hard to persuade your editor that it's time for yet the 27th story this month on Fannie Mae. So issue fatigue has always been a chronic problem in the media. Um, and particularly, if you're trying to keep people from changing the channel, you keep changing the subject. We need to stop doing that. We need to stick with stories and follow through with them uh, and fight that fatigue. Um, I personally am going to use this crisis to try to figure out how to be more convincing. Because I think many of us in the, in the media, and I'm not being defensive here, I promise, we did some great work. <laughs> In March of 2000, I worked with Lowell Bergman on a story that we partnered with uh, ABC 2020 that uh, exposed how Lehman Brothers was financing a uh, subprime lender here in California uh, who had been the subject of uh, uh, disciplinary action in four states. Four attorneys general had taken action against them. And Lehman Brothers continued to finance them, bought their subprime mortgages, put them into mortgage-backed securities and sold them off to institutional investors all over the world. That story ran in March 2000. But it didn't persuade Alan Greenspan that he might, maybe ought to take a look at that and prevent it from mo moving forward. So when people rattle off all the great stories that we have done, and we did do a large number, certainly at the Times, at the Wall Street Journal, the, at Business Week, a large number of very prescient, very solid, very uh, uh, um, uh, forceful stories, somehow they weren't convincing enough to the public. So I'm going to be thinking about ways to make my reporting more convincing. Have I persuaded you that this is an important problem? What can I do more of? I'm thinking about using more historical analogies to remind you what happened last time. Um, it's said on Wall Street that the four most dangerous words in the market are, it's different this time. <laughs> and finally, I would urge that as we proceed here tonight and as we look, uh, look back, that we, particularly as we look forward, that we keep a sense of humility about the ability of the media um, to turn a powerful tide of public opinion. Um, it is true that the pen is mightier than the sword, but the pen is not mightier than a yawn. The, the public's indifference to what we write about can undo our impact, our efforts at impact, and timing is extremely important. Um, ask yourself how sympathetic, how, how much do you think it would change the public mood if the media tomorrow were to start a long stream of stories about um, the, how difficult it is for the investment bankers who are trying to salvage Wall Street? how hard it is to cover the tuition payments that they've committed to when their bonuses have been ended for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, a sympathetic story about investment bankers, would that change anybody's mind today? So I think we need to have a sense of humility and not overestimate the ability of the media to swim against the grain.
Um, it, the public will listen when it's ready to listen. Um, we need to have said it, but it also needs to have been heard. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you've been heard. Yeah. Alan? Yeah, so I guess let me just make a couple of quick points to, to help get the conversation going. And, and uh, uh, not to be contrary, but uh, the first thing I do is question a couple of the assumptions that I think under, under, underlie this whole discussion. Uh, the first one is the one about complexity. No question that there are aspects of this uh, uh, event that are mind-numbingly complex. Um, uh, the CDS market, uh, which nobody understood very well clearly as it was growing to phenomenal levels. The CDO market, these complex securities. But, you know, there's some pieces of this that were really very simple, very clear, very apparent. I mean, when did it become okay to say, we're going to make mortgage loans on 100% of the value of your property, no money down. And, you know, by the way, we're not going to require you to document the fact that you have an income so that you can pay for it. And, and you know what else? We're going to, we're, we are going to have negative amortization uh, so that the value, you know, the payments on your loan are going to balloon enormously in two years' time. And furthermore, we're going to qualify you based on your ability to pay in the first year not your ability to pay in two years uh, when, the, when the mortgage balloons. These were, all, uh, these were all fully reported in the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Business Week. As they were happening, it was sort of ripping apart uh, a century of common practice in the mortgage markets. You didn't have to be a rocket science to look at it and scratch your head and say, something funny is going on out there. Uh, why does it make sense uh, to be pursuing this kind of practice? And yet everybody did it. Um, uh, it. It wasn't that complex, and it wasn't that secret. It was all pretty transparent, and we all sat and watched it. And in part, we watched it because it was some sort of strange combination of, of hope and greed that many of us were complicit in because we were making money off of it. Um, it was a good deal for us. You know, we were getting money off our house, so we wanted it to be okay because it was uh, enabling us to afford our lifestyles. Um, so so I, I think it's dangerous to say this crisis happened because it was so complex that people couldn't see what was really going on. The core of the crisis was simple, transparent, clear. We all knew it was happening and many of us were participating in it. So, so I, I think it's very important to keep that in mind. And, and then this, the second one, which is related to the first one, is the notion that if only we, the media, had done a good enough job getting information out to people, somehow this wouldn't have happened. Well, uh, you, you know, we have a heavy responsibility to make sure we're reporting about what's going on. And there's certainly areas where we failed. Again, the CDS market, uh, the notion that this giant gambling casino had been uh, created where people were making bets with very little underneath them. We didn't do a good enough job on that. Um, uh, we didn't do a good enough job on, uh, I think, collectively, on reporting on the enormous conflicts of interest that were at the core of the bond rating business. Um, it's not that it was never mentioned, but I don't think we really shined a light on it on the way we could have. On the other hand, there were other things. Uh, Diana mentioned uh, 
the story she personally wrote about Fannie Mae. I mean, I edited a you know, page one series about Fannie Mae for years. It's not like we didn't write about the fact that this was an inherently conflicted business model uh, where the risk was being harbored by the taxpayer, but the profits were going to private shareholders. That, that's not something we just discovered in the last year and a half. We knew about it, we wrote about it, but at some point, uh, I think you have to, um, you, you, at some point you can't hold journalism responsible for people who are f with full information make bad decisions. It, it, it's a little bit like political reporting. Uh, uh, political journalists have a responsibility to tell you everything they can about the candidate, everything they can about the candidate's background, everything they can about the candidate's position, everything they can about the candidate's character. But at the end of the day, they're not responsible for telling you who to vote for. You're responsible for deciding who to vote for. The information can only take you so far. And, and so, I, so I, you know, I think there is a limit to the degree to which you can hold journalism responsible for a lot of really stupid decisions that were made throughout the system. Now, we can talk about why those stupid decisions were made, why it is we human beings seem to live through these financial bubbles and cycles and, and uh, have such short memories. And one of the things that fascinates me is why our financial memories seem to be getting shorter and shorter and shorter. The bubbles seem to be happening more frequently. You know, it used to be, we used to think of, of these kinds of financial crises as being a once in a generation. You know, everybody kind of loses, loses their senses and goes wild for a while and then it blows up and for the next 20 years people know better. But now it's for like the next 48 hours. <laughs> and, then, and then we move on to the next one. And, and then, the, then the last thing, just as to, to sort of help get the conversation uh, uh, started, that I'd like to point out is that um, I think the real challenge for journalism may not be uh, what's happened, but what's going to happen. Uh, I, uh, people are really angry, uh, uh, and it's no surprise. You know, Americans were very tolerant of, I, I happen to live in Greenwich, Connecticut, so I see it around me. Americans were very tolerant of these people who, who built up huge fortunes so that they could invest in a 40,000 square foot house and, uh, you know, make, uh, make, uh, uh, $500 million a year, in a couple of cases, a billion dollars a year. People tolerated that until the day came that they saw some of these same people go to Washington, stand before Congress, and say, now you must bail us out for the good of the country. And then they got really, really mad. Um, and it's, it, it's creating some political effects that I think are going to make it very difficult to, to clearly analyze, and Diana referred to this, clearly analyze what happens next. I mean, we're going to get over the financial crisis. It's going to take some time, but we'll get over it. I think we're going to get over the economic crisis. That will take even more time, but we'll get over it. I think history suggests that the negative political ramifications of an event like this last much longer than either of those. Uh, and, and I'll end with just one media anecdote that I think illustrates the point. Um, time magazine started its man of the year, now person of the year, but they started its man of the year in the mid uh, 1920s. In the first five years that they were doing Man of the Year, two of the five were CEOs, were businessmen. One was uh, Walter Chrysler, one was uh, Durand, I guess, was the chairman of General Motors at the time. Then the stock market crashed, the Great Depression hit. It was six decades before another businessman was named 
Time Magazine Man of the Year. You had to get all the way to the 1990s before a single business person made it onto that list. You had three in the 1990s, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Andy, Groves, Andy Grove. Well, I, I think that says something about the incredible damage to our faith in markets and in business that's done by an event or events like the ones we've witnessed in the last two years. Uh, and the danger of kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater in the political backlash that occurs in the aftermath of these events, I think, is very real. And that puts a huge burden on the press to try and keep people focused on uh, what the actual wrongs were that need to be righted, uh, but narrowly focused on the wrongs that need to be righted. So anyway, with that, I'm not sure where we're going next, Jim. Alphabetical. We're definitely going to Steve, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here and to be with this panel. I don't know whether you realize this, but um, President, myself, accepted the, the, these guys are the real deal. Steve Shepard is um, an editor's editor, and Diana is the reporter's reporter. And there's two things in life you don't want to be. You don't want to be competing with Alan Murray uh, <laughs> to cover economic policy in Washington, and the other thing you don't want to be is on the same panel with Alan Murray, because <laughs> he's so good at it. Um, <clears throat> we'll probably get in a big debate tonight about uh, whether the business press let us down by not exposing, and I mean really exposing, um, all that was done by sleazy brokers and greedy investment bankers and conflicted rating agencies and regulators who were asleep at the switch. And to many of us, this appears to explain how we got into the fix that we're in. And, you know, to a degree, all that's true. But I'd ask you to think about another story. And that's the story of the richest country in the world that for many years lived beyond its means. It consumed more than it produced, and it invested more than it saved. And if any other country in the world had done this, we know what would have happened. Uh, the country's currency would have declined would have been a sort of a financial crisis, but the currency would have declined to the point where its imports and its exports came back into relative balance. Um, and it, was, it would be a poorer country, but um, uh, it wouldn't go on very long. But it went on a long time for the United States because we are the United States and because our currency is the world's currency. And because particularly our trading partners in Asia and the Middle East didn't want our currency to decline because they wanted to keep selling us stuff. And so they were very happy to basically finance the stuff that we were buying from them. And it was a very nice symbiotic relationship. It created a lot of jobs uh, and lifted a lot of people out of poverty in those countries. And we got to live beyond our means. Um, but the process by which they held their currency pegged to ours um, without going into too much detail, um, the way they did that was to take all those dollars that they had at the end of the year, let's, let's simplify it a little bit, and rather than turn them into their own currency, which would have caused the dollar to go down, they decided that, no, they didn't want to do that, so they were going to invest them in dollar-denominated financial assets. And that really means treasury bonds, Fannie and Freddie bonds, auto loan bonds, uh, student loan bonds, they bought them all. 
And by doing that, they created a credit bubble. They created lots of credit, cheap credit. And um, we had the greatest credit bubble the world has ever seen. And it wasn't just mortgage loans. It was all kinds of loans. Car loans, student loans, corporate takeover loans, commercial real estate loans. There was so much money <clears throat> um, that uh, there was going to be a problem no matter what happened. It was inevitable um, in a market system that if you flood it with so much money, um, people acting as rational human beings profit-maximizing companies will do the things that they did. We weren't stupid when we went out and borrowed against the value of our houses um, to live better. You know, if your house is going up from $400,000 to $500,000 in the space of three years, it's a perfectly rational thing to say, well, let me take... No, $5,000 a year out of the value of that house, and I'll spend it, and we'll all go on a, on a vacation at Christmas, which we didn't used to be able to afford. That was a rational thing to do, if our house really was worth 500000 The problem was that it was a mirage. It was a mirage created um, by the fact that the house went up, and the house went up because cr the value of credit went down, the cost of credit went down. So we weren't all stupid. Um, and we weren't all venal, but what we did had a lot to do with this crisis. Now, everybody knew about these macroeconomic imbalances. I mean, when you hear about trade deficits, that's essentially what, what we're talking about. Um, but what was not obvious was um, that it couldn't go on for years. In fact, it did go on for years. And so people who used to you know, warn about this, well, after a while, they stopped warning and we stopped listening to them. Um, and it's anyway, it's pretty abstract. I mean, who's going to say, well, I'm not going to make this loan because we're running a trade, you know, too much of a current account deficit. That's not the way people behave and that's not the way they act. So we let it go on and, you know, it was mutually beneficial, even though we knew it wasn't sustainable. So I go through this. Uh, so the question is then, so who's responsible? Is it all those greedy bankers and mortgage bankers and rating agencies and regulators, did they cause this, or was it the, was it the macroeconomic imbalances that caused it, that we, in which we were all implicated? And the answer, of course, is that it's both. And it's a very hard thing to sort through. It's very hard to figure out what the causality is. And I go through this long academic explanation um, to remind, I think, all of us that one of the roles of the press is that, that the press has lots of roles, but one of them is to uncover stuff, but we have another role, which is also to explain the way the world really works in a clear and understandable way. The problem with explanatory journalism is that it is not very sexy. It also often gets in the way of what we want to do, which is to moralize about what's going on. We like to identify good guys and bad guys. Um, but if we're being honest with ourselves, we have to say um, to Americans that in their search for figuring out who the bad guys are in this story, who the culprits were, that they have to take a trip to the bathroom mirror 
and look in it. Um, and that's a hard thing for journalists to do, and people don't want to hear it. We all know the press is supposed to speak truth to power, but we also have an obligation to speak truth to our readers about their own shortcomings, and that's one of the other things that we didn't do um, during and before this crisis. Thank you very much. Steve? Thank you very much. Uh, nice to be here with all of you. Thank you for coming. Um, the thing about going last on a panel like this with such distinguished people reminds me of the story about the guy who goes on a trip to Israel and goes to visit the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, and he's sitting there and listening to everybody talk very intelligently about issues, and then somebody else comes up and talks very intelligently about issues, and then somebody else comes up and talks very intelligently about issues, and this goes on and on. Finally, he turns to his friend. He says, well, you know, they're all, they're all, you know, this is very compelling, but it just keeps going on like this, and he said, you don't understand. He said, this is Israel. Everything has been said, but not everybody has said it. <laughs> so, so I will try not to duplicate uh, some of these comments that are very astute. You know, when I look at this or when I think about the media coverage of a, of a crisis, and it happened, of course, in the run-up to the Iraq war where the press was um, vilified, I think, quite correctly for I'm missing the fact that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Um, the same sort of thing is going on now, and the press gets some blame for all this. And what strikes me uh, about it is that um, it's amazing how much of the financial crisis was caused by an utter collapse in the entire system of checks and balances that we have in this country to prevent this sort of thing. Uh, there's a lot of blame to go around, and I just made a very partial list, some of which repeats uh, what my colleagues have said. But uh, you start with the Federal Reserve, you know, and just as the CIA missed the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Federal Reserve missed the credit crisis uh, big time. Um, uh, they, they didn't think there was a housing bubble. They failed to rein in risk and, and the over-leveraging on Wall Street. Alan Greenspan would go around telling people, I heard him say this, more than once, um, you can't have a housing bubble. Housing markets are local, so you might have a housing bubble in Phoenix or Tampa or uh, Miami um, or San Diego, but you can't have a national housing bubble. Well, um, you know, it, it should have been obvious, and maybe it was, uh, that you can have a national credit crisis and indeed an international credit crisis, uh, and in fact we did. Uh, the second major villain of the piece to me was the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is supposed to be regulating uh, markets, and it was very clear that enforcement was woefully lax among a lot of uh, SEC uh, commissioners. Um, you know, the SEC was warned directly about Bernie Madoff. And by the way, there was some good journalism done by Barron's uh, about Bernie Madoff many years ago. But the SEC was, was approached by a whistleblower who said, you know, more or less what was going on, or he suspected something was wrong, go investigate. They went and investigated, and they didn't find anything. Now, that is a massive failure of regulatory oversight, if there ever was one. Uh, the credit rating agencies, Alan referred to it, um, instead of being overseers, they really became the 
became enablers of what was going on. Their business model does have a fundamental conflict of interest, and they ended up working with debt issuers to give them the ratings they wanted, uh, which was documented in the press, actually, um, but long after the fact. Uh, and so they slapped AAA ratings on a lot of junk, really. Um, the uh, Congress and two administrations, the uh, Clinton administration and the Bush administration, it's very fashionable to blame this on the Bush administration because they had a deregulatory fervor. Um, but it really started during the Clinton, administ Clinton administration. The Glass-Steagall Act uh, was repealed in 1999 while Bill Clinton was president. Uh, it was considered a, um, a, uh, a relic of the Depression and certainly not necessary in our more sophisticated age. Um, the, uh, the, the Democratic stars like Bob Rubin and, and Larry Summers, and to some degree, lesser degree, but to some, uh, Arthur Levitt at the SEC, um, all favored deregulation and, and, and beat back um, people who wanted to restore some uh, regulation to financial markets. And these were Democrats. Um, the, uh, out, the treatment of Alan Greenspan by the media uh, was nothing short of hero worship. Um, and uh, it just, we, you know, we were just wrong and we didn't question him enough. I mean, there were some stories from time to time, but not enough to question uh, his, uh, his ideology, uh, his anti-deregulation, uh, and his denial of a housing bubble. Um, the, uh, there is somebody, more than one mentioned, there wasn't enough scrutiny of the shadow banking system, uh, which wasn't regulated. Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, Merrill Lynch, uh, Goldman Sachs, not regulated to the degree that the commercial banks were. And, um, we really didn't know enough of what was going on. Uh, um, so, um, this brings me to the media. Um, and what I would say is that we in the media did some very, very good stories, some on subprime loans, some on executive compensation, some on Freddie uh, Mac and Fannie Mae, uh, and again, over and over in some cases. Um, but we didn't always follow up. We didn't always connect the dots, and we didn't raise our voices loud enough, often enough. And as a result, the good stories that were done, and you can find them, were drowned out by the generally upbeat coverage of the economy and the markets. You know, there's a saying on Wall Street that it's hard to fight the tape. Um, and just as there are momentum investors on Wall Street, there are momentum reporters. And when markets are going up, you know, reporters tend to report it and try to explain why the market is going up. Uh, but it's rare that people will come out and say, the market is just too high. Uh, and, you know, e even when Alan Greenspan talked about irrational exuberance, the Dow Jones average was about 6,500 when he made that remark. The market, of course, went above 14,000, and even today is about 8,400. Um, it's just very hard to be uh, contrarian when the market is going from 6,500 when he made that remark to 14,000. You know, I look at the various branches of the media and how they did, and I, I think that the broadcast networks essentially abdicated on this story. 
and maybe it wasn't too complex, as you say, Alan, but they sure as hell thought it was, and they just gave up and didn't try to do it in any depth. Um, you know, CNBC, which is the largest business channel, is, you know, this has been much commented on, treats investing the way ESPN treats sports coverage. And they tend to celebrate it and cheer it on and so on. And they, in the climate when the markets were going up, um, that was what people seemed to want, and they gave it to them. Uh, much has been made about Jim Cramer. Um, uh, John Stewart did a wonderful job taking him apart. Uh, George Will, in one of his columns, said, never play poker with somebody named Slim and never take financial advice from somebody who shouts at you. Um, and I, I think that's right. I think um, from the magazine world where I came from, uh, you know, my, my biggest regret was um, we should have, one of us, put on the cover a four-letter word called risk and say, it is out of control. And I remember after I had left Business Week and I was already uh, starting this graduate school of journalism at City University, um, I remember talking to an insurance executive and he was going on about how, you know, the interest rates on risky investments weren't really that much higher than interest rates on very safe treasury bills. And he said, you know, there's no premium for risk. And it just struck me. And I thought, somebody should sh start shouting about that risk. It's out of control. And we didn't do it loud enough. All of us can point to very good stories. We didn't do it loud enough and often enough until the message got in, not to everybody, because that never happens, but to enough people in position to do something about it. And so to some degree, some degree, because there's plenty of blame to go around, uh, in some fundamental sense, we didn't do all we could have done. And uh, I think that's a cause of some regret, despite a lot of the good individual stories that um, people at this table did in that period of time. Well, we have a lot of uh, very polite um, agreement and disagreement. So I, I wonder, uh, uh, very quickly, we'll open it up to the floor for questions. But I wonder if before we do that, if anybody wants to comment on the, on the presentations of your colleagues. Anybody want to reply to anything that was obviously? Well, I, since I had the last word, I guess I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I just uh, wanted to slightly clarify, if I hadn't earlier, uh, Alan. I wasn't saying that complexity um, uh, made it, uh, uh, that, that complexity was at the root of the financial crisis. The point I was trying to make was that the complexity of the uh, of some of the, the elements of this story is a challenge for the media in terms of communicating it to what is no longer necessarily a business news audience. It, we have been blessed overnight with the, the deepest, broadest general uh, general reader audience for business news uh, that we probably had in a long, long time, perhaps since the uh, uh, Arab oil shocks of the 70s when, uh, when price inflation really brought the American reader to the business pages. So I I'm not blaming the crisis on the complexity. I'm saying that complexity made our job of communicating about the crisis um, more difficult um, 
the, given the nature of the changed one, audience. One, one other point about complexity that I would uh, make, which is that, you know, I think we didn't fully understand the downside of some of the financial innovation oh, that was going on. And doubt. I think about mortgage-backed securities, which were invented by a man named Lou Ranieri when he was at Solomon Brothers many, many years ago. And everybody thought, including me, that this was a wonderful thing. Because the problem with mortgages, one of the problems with mortgages is that banks redline certain neighborhoods and minority uh, members of minority groups had a hard time getting a, a mortgage because the banks just wouldn't lend in certain neighborhoods. So along come subprime loans and everybody thought, well, uh, if they assess the risk properly and make sure that people are in a position to pay back, at least this is a way of getting loans to minority people. And also, they would securitize the loans and get them off the books of the originating bank. And, uh, you know, this would diversify the risk to a whole body of uh, other individuals and institutions. And, you know, diversifying risk is a good thing. That's the whole theory of the insurance business. Well, what we didn't understand, I don't know if this is the complexity or we just were too, I don't know. But what we didn't understand is when you diversify risk, you also can spread financial contagion uh, around the world, and that's in fact what happened uh, after a period of years. Yeah, so, yeah. See, I, I, I mean, you, you do. So you scratch your head and yeah. say, okay, these these securities were created, and banks were getting them off their books, and sophisticated investors were going out and buying them, and so, isn't that okay? Yeah. And 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 that's where the complexity uh, issue comes in because. Uh, uh, it's clear in retrospect that the people who were buying these securities didn't have a clue what they were buying, yeah. did not have a clue what they were buying. Well, again, to me, that's a, that should be a pretty simple principle for institutions to enforce. If you don't know what you're buying, don't buy it. But <laughs> even, initially, even if it's rated tri AAA, uh, right? Uh, <laughs> but initially, I mean, you know, uh, we're, we're at that stage in any crisis when uh, the sound bites are, are defeating uh, uh, the actual history here. Uh, initially, mortgage-backed securities were a really good idea, and the institutional investors who bought them knew exactly what they were buying. They were institutional investors who were precluded by their covenants from buying real estate. They couldn't buy it. Real estate happened to be a real good investment if you have long-term commitments like pensioners that you have to pay off over a long period of time. So the creation of mortgage-backed sure. securities yeah, enabled you, an entire pool When you slice of, them and dice them and said, you're only getting this tier and not this tier. There is a, at some point, people no longer understood what it was they were purchasing. Without a doubt. But to say that the whole concept of mortgage-backed securities was flawed from the get-go is wrong. But see, that's, that's what made this whole reporting issue so challenging, right here in a nutshell. If we could have said from the very get-go, don't ever buy or issue a mortgage-backed security. No, 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 that's not what I said. I that, said don't but, buy a security oh, you don't understand. I know that isn't what you said. However, what that left us with is detecting the tipping point. Yeah. Yeah. When did a very sensible investment idea that managed to marshal a huge amount of capital into an area of real estate uh, that, that allowed it to diversify when did that become something that was out of control and poorly understood? Detecting the tipping point is a heck of a lot harder than identifying the, the, rogue, uh, you know, the rogue state right off the bat or identifying the, the, the fatal virus right there in the Petri dish. Uh, we didn't have that luxury. We had to try to figure out as journalists 
okay. This looks so good. This looks okay so far. But when, did it, when does it reach the point when it isn't okay? And I suggest that's a lot harder to do. Did you want to reply to that? Me? Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, no. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Beating him into submission right. here. <laughs> Steve, do you have any comments uh, before we open it up to questions? Well, let me give you a very concrete example that, that as I said, I, this is not just about subprime mortgages, and it's, I think that there's a mistake in looking at it at that, but let me deal with, let's deal with the situation of subprime mortgages. So there had been, it was all, as Alan said, it was all out there that people were making ninja loans, no income, uh, no documentation, uh, uh, no money down loans. In fact, they were advertising these things in our publications, okay? So there was no secret about it. So if you were a reporter and you were to say, you know, this really sounds like bad underwriting, this is really stupid, this is not good lending, and you were to call up uh, the Mortgage Bankers Association, they would have been able to show you all sorts of statistics going back a number of years, not, not large numbers of years, but a number of years, showing what the default rates were on those loans. And they were at historic lows. They were low. There was nothing to indicate that those loans were bad loans. But guess what? We didn't know something. We forgot something. We didn't think of something. Because we were in an environment where if you had a loan and you were behind on the loan and someone was about to foreclose on the loan, what did you do? You called up another lender and you refinanced the house and you refinanced it at a level that included all the money you owed the last guy plus the penalties and you could do that. Warren Buffett, who has already been mentioned here, had a very has a very famous statement, which is, a rolling loan gathers no loss. <laughs> okay. And so there's a reason why there weren't any defaults, which is because you could get out of the situation very easily. Now, I don't know why we didn't figure that out. Um, Warren Buffett had said that many years before, but... Uh, I don't know why we didn't figure it out, but I'm just trying to give you a sense of what happens when a reporter, an ordinary reporter, not a brilliant reporter, tries to sort of go on her instincts and say, this is crazy. You hit the facts, the facts say what they did, and what are you gonna do? There were no defaults. Now, if, if you're Steve, you get to say in your column, I think this is crazy. Right. If you're me, you don't get to say in your story, I think this is crazy. I've got to, I've got to demonstrate uh, and meet a certain burden of proof that would persuade the jury of the readership, and first of all, the jury of my editors, uh, that, that I've got it right. Um, and you know, one of the problems is the collection of data, and this is one of the things that I think is going to be perhaps a healthy outcome of this crisis is we're going to understand, we're going to understand better, regulators and politicians are going to understand better what kind of information they need to have, what streams of information need to be generated uh, to allow them to adequately monitor what's going on. It, to take Steve's example, uh, if there were in the documentation of mortgage-backed securities any metric that would have allowed us to measure what percentage of those loans were refinanced, how many were refinanced twice, 
how many had been refinanced three times. That would have helped, but hey, guess what? Not something they were required to disclose. So, you know, if, if it's easy to say you could have written that story, but you had to write it with something. You can't make bricks without straw. And we're finding that there were a lot of elements of what was happening that nobody was required to disclose and therefore didn't, which means that, you know, you're relying on sources who are pursuing their own agenda. Uh, they're the people calling me and Steve and saying this is crazy, but they don't have to prove it. We do. So. Well, we have a, a, a columnist, a reporter, and two sometime editors, right? Now, you said the columnists can just say, if you think it's crazy, it's crazy. And he did. Uh, and he, <laughs> he did. did. And right. he did. Right. 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 He did it very right. effectively. Reporter needs, needs uh, uh, the right the different opportunity. Standard. Right, right. And an editor who would support you. So why don't we hear from the editors? You saw it. You thought it was crazy. Well, I was actually a, a columnist at the time. And I did write that it was right. crazy oh, as well. Right. <laughs> so maybe that's a question okay, for so Steve. You were an editor. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, um, magazines um, have a little more leeway than <laughs> Diana had at the I clear times. Wrong I, I already <laughs> confessed to saying we should have done a four-letter word cover. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I don't know whether it was happening while I was still there. I've been gone more than four years. But, um, you know, I do think that if one of the magazines had slapped that on in that way, that would have been the shouting that I think would have been necessary. Sometimes a cover story or a big front page story can sway, uh, you know, not everybody, but at least uh, opinion makers. And, um, and so... Uh, even the formats of journalism that were licensed to do a little more than you're able to do didn't do it. I think now we should open this up to questions. So if anybody has a question, please stand in line. We'll alternate between the mic on this side and the mic on that side. But please make it a question. And if you want to direct it to a particular panelist, please let us know. But questions, not statements. Well, I'm going to try and make this. Is this on? Mm -hmm. um, Two quick questions. One is, I noticed that most of you tended to talk about the financial crisis rather than the economic crisis. And why are you making that substitution? I think there's a tendency for the financial community to want us to believe that finance is so important that there almost is no economy without it. But I'd like your opinions. The second one is, I think we tend to talk about the market problem and the market failure which I think is a smokescreen from its being a corporate form problem. And none of you talk about the form of corporations. It's the corporation itself as a quasi-monopoly institution, as Adam Smith warned us against, that is a large part of why we get the distortions in the markets. It's not a failure of markets. It's the way corporations operate in markets. Hmm. Anybody want to respond? It sounds well, like Steve Perlstein ought to respond yeah, to the economy. I, I would just like to say why I talk about it as a financial crisis uh, more prominently than an economic crisis, and that's primarily because I cover finance. But more to the point, economic cycles, economic uh, uh, cycles have come and gone without financial crises. Well, you know, and vice to, versa. And vice versa. We, you know, there, certainly there was a 
uh, Steve could help me on this. There, there, were there were financial market crises. Uh, Long-term capital management comes to mind. Uh, big the hedge funds. Yeah, the junk bond crisis. There, there have been crises in the financial markets where big important pieces of the financial markets froze up. I mean, some people would argue that the 87 market, uh, stock market crash uh, fell into that, that crisis that did not result in or occur at the same time as an economic crisis. So what we've got now is we've got a, a granddaddy of a financial crisis, one of the most serious that we've had in 50, 60 years. Um, and we've got a serious uh, economic uh, uh, recession, without a doubt. Um, but from where I sit, if we can't, if we can't fix the financial crisis, the economic crisis gets a lot harder. If we fix the economic, I don't, I don't think we can fix the economic crisis without fixing the financial crisis, but I'll so, hand that off so, to so Steve. So the interactions between the two uh, pose an unusual situation. They're, Higher they're degree of difficulty. They're inextricably linked. I mean, yeah. Steve talked about the excess of, date, of debt. This mm -hmm. Steve talked about the absence of risk. Those things caused people to live well beyond their means. The economic crisis that we're living through now is a result of the adjustment that has to take place in order to correct for that period that was fueled by, uh, by financial issues. So I, I don't think you can really separate the two. Steve, did you want to say something about this? No, I think that's All right, well, next question on this side. It's as hard for us to stick to a question as it is to you, for you to stick to objective fact. The regulators, what evidence do you have that the regulators and the regulated were not the same people and that government and industry is not run by the same people? Well, you know, I guess, I would say, probably speaking for all of us, that we've been around long enough that we don't really believe in conspiracies um, because we don't think people are that competent. <laughs> That's absolutely right. And, um, you know, there's, the regulators clearly. Yeah, you know, I don't think probably, I, I speak for myself, but I, I bet. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, it's probably not the case. It's probably that people were incompetent rather than that they were very well organized in a way to, to all get together a few rich, powerful people and steal the money from everybody else. Um, we, we actually have observed these people pretty close up. And, yeah, well. Well, I think, I think there's something to the point uh, in that, it, you know, it doesn't have to be a conspiracy, conspiracy in that they sit down in a room and close the door and work all this out um, for there to be a commonality of interest. And I think that in the, uh, the Bob Rubin, Larry Summers era in the waning uh, last couple of years of the Clinton administration, um, they fervently believed in deregulation in part because they saw things from that perspective. I think there's some truth to that without it being a conspiracy. And um, yeah, that's been a problem of regulation since the 30s is that the uh, the regulators get captured by the people they're supposed to regulate, um, and it, it just it's a it's a problem not of conspiracy but of bureaucracy uh, and and government interaction with the private sector. Uh, it doesn't always happen, and there are many many examples of very very good regulation. For example, the FAA and airline crashes. They have not been captured by the airline industry at all. 
so you can't have good regulation. But I think in this case, you have something of a point. I wouldn't call it conspiracy, but I think it's sort of a commonality of viewpoint, sort of. Perhaps I'm expressing the same question, but I recently read that the financial oligarchs in America now control both parties. Uh, I take it you people don't agree with that point of view. Well, this, I, I, I mean, this is an interesting this, – this conversation has taken an interesting turn. Um, uh, maybe it's because we're at a university campus. Or maybe it's – I don't – I mean, I, I think Steve makes a good point. Look, in the last three decades of the 20th century, uh, the faith in free markets was at an historical high. It was an amazing period. I mean, in this country, we, we rolled back regulation, we rolled back tax rates, but even more impressive was what happened in the rest of the world. I mean, communism collapsed. Uh, I remember traveling with a group of cabinet officials in the first Bush administration to Poland right after Poland came out from uh, uh, from communism, and, and Les Balcerowicz was the finance minister who was going to guide them on their transformation. And I remember, and we were allowed... It was one of those great moments when somebody wasn't paying attention and the reporters were allowed into the meeting. Uh, and, uh, and one of the cabinet secretaries said to uh, Balcerowicz, said, well, so, Mr. Balcerowicz, are you trying to figure out some sort of a third way between the you know, unfettered capitalism of the United States and the communism that you're coming from? Maybe there's a, a Swedish model or a Japanese model. And Balcerowicz, without... Bad, you know, without blinking an eye, said there is no third way. It's over. Communism lost. Capitalism won. So we went through a period of three decades where there was just this enormous, enormous faith in the power and the efficacy of markets that was shared by the regulated and the regulators alike. And and by the way. There were a lot of benefits to those three decades. You know, it was a pretty extraordinary period of growth. If you, if you look at, say, a place like China, you had the greatest alleviation of poverty in the history of man that resulted from that period of faith in markets. So it wasn't all bad, folks. There were some good things there, but clearly it got out of hand. I think the uh, financial oligopoly of both parties you're talking about comes down to the way politics is financed in this country. Uh, you know, a scandal is in our midst right now, and we've written about it a lot. It's been discussed about it, and we do, do not do a damn thing about it, which is the way elections are financed in this, in this country. And uh, um, private interests and even, you know, causes that we agree with are paying politicians, and you know, for their election campaigns and in return expect favors, and that's what's happening. So I think to that degree, you've got a point. I just want to echo something that Alan just said. At times like this, you know, after the Depression, you know, everybody became a communist. You know, it was very, it was very fat. Communism was the rage in intellectual circles because clearly the market system didn't work. Well, hell, the market system did work. Look what happened in the last 60 years in this country and indeed in the world. Standards of living have gone up enormously. And we're now in a period now we're going to, where we have had a crisis, we've had a bit of a scandal, and we're having a backlash against the system as a result of that. And don't go overboard because a, a system of properly regulated capitalism can work. What happened was we didn't have regulation. Uh, oh, wait, wait, you were next? Yeah. Yes, thank you. 
I want to pull it back to journalism. <laughs> what I hear is, and it's, I'm willing to accept it, you reported over the last 10 years about everything that was going wrong and no one listened to you. Now you're reporting day by day about all which is going on and nobody's listening to you because when it goes past the reporting to any sort of depth, it becomes the Wall Street Journal editorial or the New York Times editorial or Drudge's editorial or Limbo's editorial or um, the liberals, I, I forget, Maddow's. What are we just going to assume that journalism is reporting in the rearview mirror and the rest of the yammering is through uh, prism and uh, rose-colored and sunglasses and there's no way to figure out how to proceed? Or can you give us some advice? <laughs> well, um, I was asked about this at a, at a uh, talk I gave at, uh, at my alma mater, the Elliott School at George Washington University, and one of the uh, concerns I had was that we, we were approaching our coverage of the lead-up to this financial crisis at a time when um, there was a concerted, uh, uh, concerted movement uh, of, of thought to discredit the mainstream media. Uh, to uh, encourage the public to consider us as, as merely another special interest group with a special set of special pleadings that, um, you know, there were politicians who famously said, you know, I don't need the, the media to reach the public. The media doesn't speak for the public. Uh, the media doesn't hold me re responsible. The public does. So we were, we were navigating at a time when uh, it, it, the political divisiveness the partisanship of the country was uh, was moving in a very substantial way into partisanship uh, in in the political uh, coverage areas, and somehow I think that began to infect uh, business coverage, uh, which, as a longtime business reporter and a former government reporter, fascinates me, because the neatest thing about markets, which I just love is they don't, they don't do red states or blue states. They don't do liberal, conservative. They don't do Democrat. They don't do Republican. You know, they do fear and greed. That's what they do. <laughs> and if, um, if your house is on fire, it really shouldn't matter whether a Democrat or a Republican tells you your house is on fire. But in this instance, it did. There was Lou Dobbs's version of what was happening in finance, and there was Paul Krugman's version of what was happening in finance. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. It, these are not partisan, uh, uh, partisan issues. So uh, I would hope that one of the things that comes out of this is a greater understanding, not only on the part of the media, but on the part of the public as well, that there, there is a difference in, um, there, is, there is more nuance to the different kinds of journalism you encounter that anyone is willing to, to uh, give credit for. Um, let, you know, I, I think it's, uh, it's a healthy development if it happens. Let me address directly what you're saying, because what you're saying is the editorial pages do whatever they do from whatever point of view, and journalists look at the world in rearview mirror explaining things after the fact. Um, I think really that's a 
an overstatement and an unfair one because there are plenty of examples of journalism that broke stories that were forward-looking. You know, the classic case, of course, is Watergate. But look, you know, what the New York Times did with Elliot Spitzer. Look what the Washington Post did about breaking the story about the mistreatment of veterans at Walter Reed Army Hospital. One of the stories that I was most proud in my time at Business Week was the cover story we did called Crime on Wall Street, in which there was literally crime, not this kind of stuff. Um, but And I have a letter um, uh, framed in my office from the head of the FBI saying that they wouldn't have been able to prosecute these guys for crime if it hadn't been for a reporter on Business Week who broke that story. There's plenty of forward-looking, very, very good journalism. But journalism, you know, it's like any other profession. There are good lawyers and there are bad lawyers. There are good teachers and there are bad teachers. There are good doctors and doctors that get sued for malpractice. There's very good journalism and there's inadequate journalism. This was not so much a journalism, whatever sins the media did in covering the financial crisis were not sins of commission. You know, we said something really stupid. It, at most, it was a sin of omission. We didn't, we didn't spot it early enough. We didn't say it loud enough. We didn't whatever. But, you know, uh, and these things are hard to see. But it really, you know, I think all of us are willing to concede that there are plenty of failings of the media business, and we've touched on a number of them. But I, I really resist the overgeneralization that all we do is look at things in the rearview mirror, except for the editorial pages, which, you know, take a point of view, but they're always fighting with each other and so on. I, I think there's a lot of good journalism that is being done. And, you know, I, I sit as a judge in National Magazine Awards, and uh, we just went through that process. Um, and it was amazing how many really good stories there were, okay? And we gather at symposiums like this every now and then, when something terrible has happened in the society, and because it, it wasn't avoided, the media comes in for its share of blame. Obviously, if the public didn't know, it's the media's fault. And, you know, that's a bit of an uh, oversimplification, and, um, uh, and I think there is really a lot of good stuff going on out there. Uh, yeah, this is a really important point, because... You know, a, a discussion like the one we're having here tonight tends to be premised on the notion of the power of the media or the mainstream media. <laughs> and the, the fact of the matter is we have less power than we have ever had in the past. I mean, if you go back 30 years, there was a pretty small group of, you know, wire services, three networks and a couple of big papers that really could sit around and decide what you should know and what you shouldn't know. Our ability to do that anymore is pretty much gone. You have tons of choices. And so you can choose to read uh, Steve Perlstein or Diana Enriquez, or you can choose to watch Lou Dobbs uh, or read Paul Krugman. Um, and and, and uh, so a lot of this at the end of the day depends on what people are choosing to consume for their media. And, I, and you know, we, we don't control that, and we sort of, you, you kind of as a matter of basic belief, you have to say consumer choice is a good thing. But I find it very disturbing that so, and, and I say this as somebody who spent three years of my life in the nightly cable television world, I find it very disturbing that so many people are choosing to live in bubbles uh, where the information they consume is all information that uh, reinforces their preconceived notions, and they are not choosing to reach out to find journalists like, the, uh, uh, like Steve and Diana uh, uh, to find reporting that may challenge their, their preconceptions. So I, 
I think it's a real problem, but it's not a problem of misuse of the power of the media. It's, it, it's, it's really a marketplace. Yeah. There's a, a fragmentation of media that's going on. There is a, a defunding of media as we search for a new business model to support the new ways of doing journalism. But Alan's exactly right. This fragmentation of media, which in some way you could argue is a good thing, it's more democratized, I suppose, um, but but it it creates um, fewer power centers, um, and yeah. So I, I don't think that conspiracy or media power are really operative things now. I think our problems are now going to be the opposite, which is to figure out ways to finance and sustain quality journalism, whether and, and, it's in traditional media or it's in new media. And hope there's a good audience out there that yeah. wants it <laughs> yeah. and will support it. And, and that's not completely disconnected from the economic crisis because the advertising yeah. revenue that supports. There are, yeah, there are two things going on in the media world now. One is there's a structural change. There's a shift from traditional mainstream media print and broadcast to the new uh, internet uh, forms of journal, di digital journalism. Uh, that's a structural change and is going on uh, as a result of technology shifts. Superimposed on that is a terrible, terrible economic downturn affecting advertising. And so the speed at which the traditional media are, I don't know, collapsing is not too strong a word, uh, is astonishing to me. I thought, you know, the structural shift would play out over several years and mainstream media would have a little time to adjust. Um, and the new media would be able to figure out appropriate business models to sustain quality journalism in the digital world. Instead, it's happening like that really fast. And you've got, you know, the New York Times threatening to close down the Boston Globe, which was one of the great regional newspapers. Uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Philadelphia Daily News are in Chapter 11. All of the Chicago Tribune papers, the Tribune, the LA Times, um, the Baltimore Sun, uh, the whole company is in Chapter 11. Companies are cutting back on delivery. They're talking about not printing every day. I mean, it is astonishing what's going on. If you want to worry about journalism, that's what you should worry about. Over here. Hi. Uh, I'd like to ask about the economics for a second. Uh, this question was inspired by uh, Mr. Perlstein's uh, thoughts, which I thought, you know, I, I thought he offered a pretty trenchant analysis of what's going on right now. But uh, I'd like to hear actually you know, all of your thoughts on this. And that is, it seems to me that the uh, persistent imbalance of payments problem with the United States uh, is made possible because of the U.S.'s unique position at the heart of this uh, world dollar standard. Um, with that said, uh, recently, within the past month, uh, there's been some talk at the uh, recent economic summit of moving away from the dollar. Um, I guess, what are your thoughts on the long-term uh, future of both uh, the U.S. dollar and, I guess, as a corollary to that, the uh, dominant position of the United States in the world economy? It, it really doesn't work well if there were to be a dominant current world currency like the dollar. It doesn't, then the country who issues the dollar can't be the world's largest debtor. That doesn't work very well. So we know that. And just to sort of follow along with your question, at the moment, the, the way this thing should play out is that the dollar should go down to reflect the fact, um, well, to, ref to basically reflect the fact that we live beyond our means for a while and we're going to have to adjust. Uh, 
it's not going down, and it's not going down because everyone's scared, and they don't know what to do with their money, and so they're putting it into the bonds of the government that's the strongest government in the world and the richest country in the world, which is ours. So the thing that needs to happen isn't happening. And so get to get to your question, it would be a good idea if the world moved to some other um, way of intermediating uh, currencies and, and, and finding another um, gold standard to replace the dollar standard, basket of currencies, some other kind of currency people have talked about. But it, it would be good, and it would be good for us. Not, it would be good for us because we couldn't live beyond our means. Not, though it doesn't feel good to live beyond your means, but it's really not good in the long term. But, um, but the problem is that it's a very hard adjustment to make because a lot of people have dollars or they have things denominated in dollars, and it's not only Americans, and they don't want to see the value of those things go down. So it's probably got to be slow. Um, and we'll probably get there in 20 years. I just The second part of your question, what that says about how power ex is exercised in the world, I think Steve made a reference earlier to the fact that, you know, if, if, if we weren't the reserve currency of the world, if we were a, a smaller developing nation, you know, what happened in the 1990s when countries got in the situation we got in? They went to the IMF and begged for money, and the IMF said, we're only going to get you money, if, give you money if you do this, 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 and this, and they had to do it. Okay, so what happens to us? We go to China, uh, they give us lots of money, and we say, but please, don't mess in our business. You, uh, you don't have anything to do with us. That's not, that's not a sustainable <laughs> that is not a sustainable model for the future. And if you want something to think about going forward, it's, okay, how is that relationship going to change in the years to come? I, I don't have a point of view on that because these are the columnists and I'm not. <laughs> uh, all I, my, my perspective on it is it's going to be a heck of a story. <laughs> as, as we adjust, I don't think Steve's right that it's going to happen over 20 years. I think it's going to go faster than that because everything's going faster well, than that. And the faster it goes, the bigger a story it is. So I'm just going to go rest up for that one. <laughs> <laughs> over here? Uh, I ask uh, uh, you to two questions. Uh, first is a uh, Bernanking, uh, FRB's uh, chairman's today's speech. So, what do you so evaluate today's spe his speech? And so, uh, do you think his uh, message means? So, what do you think? So, it's a first question. And so, second is uh, uh, what uh, do you think the change the position of uh, financial institution to investment? And so especially so mega social infrastructure improvements, such as a heavy manufacturing industries improvement of energy efficiency or nuclear power plant project. So uh, I think uh, so these projects uh, so for financial institutions not to collect their foundation in short term, but uh, create long term benefit. And so, but now, so I image so much of uh, financial institution are not willing to accept a loss in the short, short term for the sake of the long term profit. So, uh, uh, please uh, tell me, so what do you think the uh, position of uh, change or not of financial institutions after economic crisis? Does anybody want to tackle that? Well, I think 
part of the assessment of um, the long-term versus short-term that's built into your question about infrastructure financing uh, is one that is interestingly being worked out in the public uh, in the public arena uh, now. That's no longer a corporate boardroom decision. It's becoming uh, a, a decision that's being um, shaped as much by, uh, by Washington policy as by uh, corporate preferences. So I, I think it's going to be very interesting to see the extent to which um, I think what we would all agree has been extremely short-term profit-focused uh, strategies on the part of many financial institutions are going to shift towards longer-term investment strategies uh, that, uh, under the uh, under the pressure of the of the current uh, uh, government regime, um, so that that's my my uh, treatment of the second question. I, I don't, I'm not sure I quite got what you wanted to say on the first. The first well, that was about question was about what do we think oh, okay. about his speech today? Oh, okay. Well, so somebody I, who, somebody I was who listened carefully to every word needs to answer that one. <laughs> Uh, I didn't listen to We were word. here having a wonderful time. Um. Mr. Bernanke's, I think the headline from Mr. Bernanke's speech was that um, he's, he's feeling more confident that, that the recession will end this year, this year, last quarter, maybe the last half, um, and that we will have hit the bottom. Um, uh, all I could point out to you is the fact that the Fed has been consistently overly optimistic um, through this entire period. And so I would say that the risks are greater that he is wrong on the downside than he is right on the upside. But I, I think financially, wouldn't, wouldn't you agree that the financial, the financial crisis, crisis, could, crisis could be is over this could be over this fall? Yeah. I don't think that the economic crisis yeah. is... We, no. we, asked, we asked our readers uh, uh, today online after the Bernanke speech, uh, when do you think the recovery will begin, which is a somewhat different phraseology right. than what he used. Yeah. Um, and 15% said this year, 42% said next year, the rest said beyond that. I think that's probably a that's pretty good probably guess. Probably pretty good wisdom of crowds. Yeah, the other the other point is about the stock market. So it 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 went down as low as sixty five hundred roughly um, in March, and it's now two thousand points higher roughly. And I think what that says is that the market got oversold because everybody was afraid we were going off the edge of a cliff. And it now appears that we're not going off the edge of a cliff, um, but we got a long road ahead of us. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that it, because it went up, it corrected for that overreaction. Right. Doesn't mean that well, it's up two thousand, so that you can expect it to go another two thousand. Right. In fact, it may be that we're going to yeah, bounce we along here at eight thousand. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to get so tired of the Dow being at eight thousand <laughs> for three years and four years that, yeah. uh, and then just when you have given up on it, that's of course we yeah. we we've, we've corrected from blind panic to mere pessimism. So. We we handed out uh, at the Wall Street Journal. We handed out hats when the Dow first hit ten thousand, uh, <laughs> which I've gotten to wear maybe. I don't know, 25 times since then, <laughs> up and down. You know, whenever it crosses, I get out the hat and put it on. I just want to remind everybody that the Dow Jones average in the summer of 1982, when Reagan was president, was about 800. So even that's with all... That's the long-term view. Yeah, that's the long-term view. So. 
thank you all for coming. This is a, a great panel. Um, I have two questions. I'll start with the first one just because it's, we were just talking about How come it. everybody has two questions? Is, <laughs> that the, is that the rule at Stanford? You've got to ask two questions? Um, you want three? <laughs> uh, Diane Henriquez, you were talking about uh, you know, you're looking for ways to try and be more convincing yeah. to, to get the point across to the American people, to the public. And then Alan Murray and Stephen Shepard, you guys were talking about how, you know, the news is much more democratic now. It's very fragmented and, you know, most people only get their news from one source, even though it'd be ideal if everyone, you know, searched, uh, you know, for five different newspapers, read them all. Seems probably a little impractical. Um, but my question is, you know, have you guys ever collaborated in a way? I mean, obviously you collaborate just in, in, the, in the industry, but have you ever, I mean, I think from my perspective, if I read something that was signed by the editors-in-chief of the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Newsweek, or Businessweek, I think that would be so effective and powerful in terms of getting the point across and being convincing. And I'm wondering if that kind of thing ever happens, or maybe it comes in the form of the top five people meeting with the president or something like that. But, so that's my first question. Okay. Well, actually, uh, <laughs> I, I can recall when the editors uh, uh, of those leading newspapers all signed the same thing, and it was a request for a federal shield law, and it didn't work. <laughs> there was another so, instance about the mad bomber. Do you remember that? Oh, the, the Unabomber. The Unabomber, yeah. yeah that, that's when, when you know, the, yeah. the concerns that uh, you know, uh, media would be extorted by threats of violence to print whatever the Unabomber wanted to be printed. There have been a few occasions where that has happened. I just want to make... The, we, we, the, the, the Pentagon Papers was another instance in which uh, there was great unity. In fact, when the New York Times was uh, had to uh, postpone um, publication because of uh, uh, the, uh, the Nixon administration had gone into court, the Washington Post began publishing um, until, the, obviously, the administration went uh, uh, into court against the Post. Uh, back in the days of uh, Robert Moses's high, uh, you know, heyday in uh, New York City, when there were a great many more daily newspapers than there are in New York City now, it was a, uh, a strategy of the competing journalists, and I put air quotes around competing because uh, the the journalists covering Robert Moses, who was immensely powerful and immensely admired by their editors, uh, had a little strategy that Robert Caro documented in his book, The Power Broker, where each one would kind of hold one little nugget back from the story he wrote today and pass it on to his competitor at the other paper so that he could break that tomorrow and get a competitive news cycle running so that the editors would try to stay ahead on the story and thereby kept the story Here, Here's alive. a technological answer to your question. It's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting question, actually, because what is now happening because of digital technology is that in the future, um, Jeff Jarvis, who's a big new media guru who's on our faculty, has this aphorism that he says about media, that a paper or any kind of publication should do what it does best and link to the rest. That journalists should become curators that do original reporting, cover your community, get it out there, but link to other good stories that you didn't do but the other paper did and put it up on your website. So, for example, the, the argument is often made in connection uh, with the Washington Post story about the Walter Reed Army Hospital thing about the mistreatment of veterans. Um, and the Washington Post broke the story. And for seven days, there was not word one in the New York Times about 
this terrible treatment. Why? Because the Washington Post broke the story. It was their story. They did follow-ups and so on. Finally, when it finally became a story about congressional reaction to this, then the Times could come in and pick up the story. And they credited the Washington Post. But people had to wait, wait seven days. If you lived that in New York and didn't – I read the Washington Post. I live in New York, but I read the Washington Post. But most people who live in New York do not read the Washington Post. And so you wouldn't know if you were relying just on the New York Times. So I think what's going to happen in the future is there's going to be a kind of collaboration brought about by linking to the rest, yep. the curation of good stories that appear in his paper and her yep. paper and his paper. It's already happening. Yes, yep. and, and, and that's, and we that's develop, a good thing. We develop a new relation. And by the way, just yeah. for clarification, I, w I want to make it clear. I wasn't suggesting that you go to 500 publications. I was suggesting that you go to the right publications. Uh, but but in, the future, in the future, it may be that those right publications become your editorial curator who, who not only uh, write good stories, but also to point you to the other stories that they think are significant or important. And you develop a relationship with somebody who, I, I mean, frankly, that's what Matt Drudge is. Matt Drudge is just an editor. He picks stories that he thinks you're going to want to know about. You may, like, you may like the way he picks stories. You may not like the way he picks stories, but you pretty much know what you're going to get. Uh, and, just, and, and, and I think the rest of us have to do He that. aggregates content. Yeah. Just, you had another to, question? Let him ask his second I want to truth squad something first, though. I think you all should uh, uh, Google the um, uh, or uh, sort of search the uh, Walter Reed story on our website and see what our public editor had to say about it. It was a little more complicated than just that we ignored it because the Washington Post had broken it. We actually had reporters trying to develop, who had been working on a competing story, trying to develop it. And, it, and you know the agony of of sitting there on six months' work and seeing it appear somewhere else, and so it's a little more complicated than that. But just the fact I say is that it, just it for didn't the defense appear in of the, the Times for about a week, whatever the reasons were. But the, I think the reasons matter. Yeah, they do. But the point is that it should, Not should have been that. curated. I'm saying the reasons it should have been for curated. It, it should have been on the New York Times site that day, crediting the Washington Post. So to summarize, then I guess you guys think there'll be a lot more linking in the future. Sure. It's happening already. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. My second question. Yes. yes. Yeah, we are, um, we are. Yeah, we are too. Yeah, we all are. And this one's a little more selfish. We love the New York Times. <laughs> Rupert talks about it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm delighted to hear that. <laughs> okay. So my second question is a little more selfish because I'm hoping you guys will help me with my homework. Um, for the past few months, I've been working on a research project on the contra uh, controversy over short selling. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, why short sellers are always blamed during times of market uh, downturn. Is this fair? Um, and, and uh, you know, uh, Diana Henriquez, you're talking about these beats. And, you know, I've done a lot of historical research on the 20th century, and short selling definitely has had a beat, but it's only appeared in, you know, 1907, uh, 1933, 1940, 1987, and now. Um, and it, it kind of, during times of, um, uh, you know, upturns in the market, it's really not talked about. Um, and so I'm wondering, and then it, this also, the issue also... Um, he has more than two questions. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just try, trying to get across my, um, my interest, because it's very hard to put this in concise words, but... Uh, there are a lot of criminals who have been taken down uh, for lots of different things, in, partly involving short selling. So, of course, that's a big story, and then that influences the public's view of short selling. And I think, um, unlike CDOs, where if you ask the average American what it is, they probably have no idea. Generally, if you ask someone what short selling is, they either won't know or they'll have some, some conception of it, 
but they, that will not be correct. You know, normally they just um, associate short selling with the speculator, thinking, okay, these are people that are, you know, buying buying fire insurance on a house and then burning their house down, that kind of thing. Um, what do so, you guys? So we question want the question. Would be. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I really have a question, but if you could. <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, I have an answer about short selling. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I guess so the question it. is. Um, it's it, there's such this is mystique about it, um, and um, what do we what do we do about that in terms of moving forward, whether or not we regulate it? Um, we do, we have always regulated. It. I mean, we well, not always. Right. We have regulated it for many years, and we're regulating it now. The question is, how do you regulate it? Um, and um, the, the short selling is a great paper topic. I'm glad you're taking it up. I don't know for which class you're doing this. Could I ask? Um, for, for a history course. A history course. Oh, interesting. Um, <laughs> well, no, I, I say that because that would be different if it were for like a finance course or for a markets course. Um, but you know, historically, you're right. Short selling has uh, long had a stigma. I mean, who was it that uh, who said that you know he who sells what isn't his and must pay it back or go to prison? Um, and that's essentially what short selling is. You borrow shares of stock and sell them at what you hope is the peak. And then when you have to replace the shares of stock, you hope that by then the price has fallen and you can buy them in the market cheaper and hand them back to the person you borrowed them from, keeping the money you made. Uh, so it's, you know, we all know that it's a really good idea to buy low and sell high. This is just the revert. We get the order different here. You, you, you know, sell high and then buy low <laughs> to replace the shares. But... But the, the stigma that is attached to short sellers um, has uh, generally had a very strong populist uh, stamp to it. Right, that's why I think it's so interesting, the tension between the Wall Street financiers who do it and the American people don't really understand the full ramifications of it. Yeah, well, it's not just Wall Street financiers right. who do it. Uh, you know, um, every a specialist on the New York Stock Exchange has to sell short. Because they have to be prepared to make a market in a stock regardless. You know, when, when everybody else wants to buy, they've got to be the people willing to sell. And often they have to sell short to do that. So short selling is an integral part of how markets function. They can't function well without it. And I don't think the general – sorry to keep interrupting. I don't think the average American understands that. And I think you just illustrated an interesting point. You just explained short selling to the audience. And every single article I've read in the in, – you know, I've read probably over 100 in the 20th century – starts by explaining what short selling is. It's not something that the average person understands, and I think... How I guess, many times do we have to explain it before people yeah. figure it out? Right. That, that's kind of my... It's, why yeah. haven't we gotten it? And yeah. why are they blamed? Maybe they're blamed where the short sellers well, are Well, it's a very unpopular thing in most people's minds to be to profit because a stock price goes down. Right. Why, it, why that's worse than profiting when a stock price goes up is beyond me. I can't answer that one, but that... That seems to be inherent in the in the functioning of our marketplace. Would, would you like a different opinion? Yeah, sure. uh, this is open to everyone. Sorry. Are you, well, I, just I, a, are you trying to find figure? Is your question really a historical question? Or is why is this thing keep coming up as being such a such a boogeyman all the time? Or is your question is it good or is it bad? Um, all of those. I mean, is it? it <laughs> <laughs> That's two more questions. It's just I want to show you. Need an editor here. Yeah. <laughs> it's. I don't actually agree with Diana. I think you could have a perfectly well-functioning capitalist market um, marketplace without short selling, uh, uh, with the with the slight exception of the people who are specialists at the New York Stock Exchange. Well, that's not a slight exception. Okay. 
Um, that, but that, you could also you could also have one, um, uh, whatever. The, the, the argument against them is that is that there should be, in theory, no relationship between the amount of short selling that goes on and the reality of the company, the, re, the underlying financial and economic reality of the thing that's being sold short, say the company. You can also sell wheat short. Right. This is why, by the way, historically, the populist, there's been a populist uh, backlash against this. People used to sell the commodities that farmers sold. They would sell that short, and they didn't like that. And there was the belief that if too many people were selling it short, that it would cause the price to go down, even though in theory there should be no relationship to it. But there seems to be a relationship to it um, because of psychology. Okay? And if there's a lot of short selling, people think, well, if there's smoke, there must be fire, and so they start to behave that way. And there's a self-fulfilling quality. There is a relationship between what goes on in the futures market, which is what short selling is happens, and in the real market, or the but, real thing. Steve, exactly the same is true of, of going long. If a lot of people are going long on a stock, everybody thinks, gee, it's going up. There must be something to it. Where there's smoke, there's fire. So we'll okay. go long. Okay. I mean, these are, th the, these are momentum and investors, and it doesn't matter whether the momentum is being driven by the longs, about whom we have no complaints, or by the shorts, about whom everybody so has So you're assuming that none of the short selling is naked short I selling? I am not. I am assuming that short selling is a fundamental well, part well, of the, the marketplace. Prob the problem naked short selling is something, is a, is a subset of it, and it means, you know, it, it is something that can legally be done only by bona fide market makers, as, is regu as the regulation are written today. Would, would you define it for our, our audience? Naked uh, short selling is actually selling it short without having borrowed, borrowed it, it first. first. And the problem with that is there, there is no, no limit on the number of short contracts that you can have. If you're buying long, there is a limit on the, on the amount of GM shares you can buy. There's only so many million out there. Okay. But if, if you don't, if you can sell it short and there's no limit on the number of shares you can sell short because it's not limited by the number of shares you can borrow, that's naked, because that's naked, then I think you start to have an effect on the real thing. But right now, under our regulations, the only people who are allowed to sell short without borrowing first but are bona fide market makers. Plenty do. Hmm? Plenty of others do. Well, but then, you know, that's like saying, you know, plenty of people cheat on their taxes. Yeah, but we, you know, if you have some adequate enforcement of the existing short-selling regulations, then you can regulate short-selling as opposed to eliminate short-selling. Well, we've written this uh, paper uh, already. Can I answer you? Can I answer you? Can I answer your question? By, I really want to. Tell me what grade. I want to answer your question <laughs> by saying. Much too much is made of this issue. It's not such a big deal, okay? It's not such a big deal. It's not, deal. really. It send isn't us, really. Send us copies in the hierarchy of, your paper. of things, it's really pretty low on what causes okay. bad outcomes. Right. But I, I have had many people uh, on Wall Street tell me that if it had only been possible to short Bernie Madoff, he would have been exposed 15 yeah, years go. ago. That, that, there you go. This is the view of New York as opposed <laughs> to the view of anywhere else in the world, okay? Uh. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but Dick Fold mm. kind of blamed the shorts, yeah. uh, in part, for... Okay, all right. It's a convenient <laughs> book, right it. but it's, it's, it's really go not... Go write it? Go, go write uh, it. Yeah. No. <laughs> I, I hope we helped with the paper. We, we've got two more questions, I think. So. Uh, uh, well, oh, I, think I, 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 I sort of had two, but... You, so, oh, I think he's next. 
Are you done? Are, yeah. yeah, I think you're next. It's, it's a very short question. Yeah. I Good. just want to um, add something to the very first statement uh, the gentleman on the left made. Uh, so we heard actually that journalists are trying or should try to convince the audience more, bring the stories out, everything. Actually, what comes into my mind is I have a little bit of feeling before the crisis started and everything, yeah, when markets were going up and everything was fine. Um, journalism at least contributed to the fact that people got more confident in the ratings, in certain indicators and everything. So what actually comes to my mind is, is shouldn't it be better if journalism would try to question things a little bit more? You know, like write in their articles, okay, come on, these ratings are fine and it looks like it works, but it could be something we don't know yet, uh, but it may turn out that it won't work in the future or something like that. Um, so uh, the question is actually, would that be a possible way to go or do you have uh, another opinion? Yeah, it's done all the time. Okay. Well, we, we did it yeah. all the time. It's done all the time. That, know, you know, where you raise questions and the outcome is uncertain. That's why time will tell is a cliche. <laughs> That's true. I mean, if we, if we could, you know, there's no doubt that my reporting would have been far more convincing, as would Steve's columns and Alan's and, and the editions uh, that uh, Steve um, edited would have been far more convincing if we'd been able to say, listen, folks, on September 15th, 2008, <laughs> Lehman Brothers is going to file for bankruptcy. It will be the second major investment bank of that year to fold, and all hell is going to break loose. <laughs> You'd have listened. <laughs> I guarantee you, you would have found Why that. Didn't you you would have found that, that pricelessly yeah, right. convincing. And as soon as I get the ability to foresee the future that clearly, I will leave journalism and go into another more profitable line of work. <laughs> but we don't have we don't have that. We can just, as I say, try to draw on historical parallels. Uh, you know, look back at past housing busts, and there aren't a lot of them in our country's history, unfortunately. But you could gone have gone to the you know, Florida land bust of 1925 and drawn a relationship between that and the uh, 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 distortions in the economy that led uh, to the stock market crash in 29. By the way, that's what Charlie Ponzi did after he mm -hmm. left Boston. He went to, he was deported, he came back, he uh, uh, sold uh, Florida swampland uh, in uh, 1925. Yeah, and then wound up in Argentina and died a pauper. But, uh, it, you know, yeah, we can, you know, we can uh, use more historical um, evidence, I think, to become more convincing. I think we need to um, keep asking regulators, what are you doing about this to become more convincing? So I think there are other things we can do short of clairvoyance. But you know, when it comes to predicting the future with convincing precision, we're just never going to be able to do it. Uh, a couple you of get the last question. Uh, yeah, I just got a couple. Um, one is, do you have two oh, questions? Couple. No, I, but, but they're such simple questions. Just ask one. We'll I, give, I hope we'll you give you another better one. Than he does. Um, one is you've told us about people sort of refinancing their mortgages and getting in a bad scrape, and um, we've also heard about you know how people are overextended and so forth. And the government gave money to the banks, and what we hear the press say is the banks should be lending probably to uncreditworthy people. Okay, and instead of saying the banks should raise interest rates to attract money from people, to attract money from overseas, you know, we, uh, and the, the, you know, the money can't be devalued. Are you now in danger of missing, like, the yeah, next yeah, yeah. financial crisis where the credit cards, you know, are going to... Great question. 
My second question. Why didn't you mention Huffington Post, All Top, which is a whole lot of blogs um, pulled together, and Twitter as being the next media? That's but uh, not, neither, I mean, I love Huffington Post. I spend a lot of time on Twitter, but neither of them do reporting. That's not what they do. They're, they're very valuable uh, uh, transmitters of opinion and of information. But what Steve was talking about a minute ago was business models that support large groups of reporters going out and finding facts and trying to determine what's going on. And Huffington pay, Post doesn't do it. that. Twitter doesn't do that. Yeah, and pain, yes, pain is. Information may want to be free, but journalists want to be paid. Um. <laughs> and, the, and most of the Huffington Post journalists are not. That's not true. A lot of very good, well-renowned writers who write serious stuff. They're not paid, but they are yeah, people with names. And they're not reporting. That's what I said. A lot of the Huffington Post journalists are, are not, not paid. I agree they're not, they're not paid, but it's not that they're lousy reporters. No, I, they don't, I said nothing about that, but it's not a sustainable model if the only people who can work for serious journalism are people who can do it for free. You do, not, you, you do not attract the best brains, the best training, the best commitment, if you can only do it so long as someone else is paying your bills. Okay. Would, would you repeat the first question, Yeah, the other, the other question is, um, shouldn't you be telling us new stories, given that people are overextended, the credit card shoe is going to drop? Um, is, isn't there another danger that you should be telling oh, yeah, us yeah. about? I, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a fabulous question. And, you know, Steve made the point early on that one of the reasons we got into this bubble was because of the after effects of the last bubble. Um, you know, we, we thought we had conquered, uh, uh, if not conquered cycles, at least, we know we have the policy tools to soften the effects of cycles. So the bubble bursts, there are going to be economic effects. So what does the Fed do? It opens the floodgates. It provides all kinds of, of credit. That, that is an important part of the story of the next bubble. Uh, it opened the, those floodgates, and it left them open too long because it was afraid of the economic consequences of the bursting of the last bubble. We may well be making that very same mistake again, and if there's something that we as journalists ought to be focusing on uh, right now, I, I, I think that's a good issue. But, but um, I'm, could I just distinguish between the, what the press is saying banks should do and what the press is reporting the government is saying banks should do? Uh, Steve right, there is a difference between opinion and reporting. Yes, yeah. obviously. And, and editorially, um, I'm sure our newspaper and lots of other newspapers are saying uh, credit needs to flow again, and it does. The credit markets nearly came to a standstill last year, uh, and, and you can't function that way. Uh, but a lot of the, the pressure about bank, uh, bank lending uh, is coming from uh, political sources rather than from Absolutely. the press. Uh, not and, from the consumer's point of view. Well, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, shift, and I've, I would be intrigued in how it could be documented. When Paulson and, uh, uh, and Bernanke initially went to the Hill to seek um, uh, bank bailout funds, or the, the financial funds, there was nothing in their rhetoric about getting lending going again. It was about safety and stability. It was keep these banks from collapsing. Right. You know, they need this money to strengthen their balance sheets. Well, excuse me, you don't strengthen your balance sheets by taking this money and lending it to a lot of uncreditworthy people. It was only as the uh, resistance to the bailout grew from a populist standpoint that this notion of reigniting credit and generating credit grew. And then the next leap was, oh, take taxpayer money and lend it. 
And that, that was a succession of understandings that unfolded uh, for political reasons, to get political deals done. It wasn't uh, something that arose from the way that the press was, re was reporting it, from my humble experience at that time. People in Washington would have a closer ear for that, but that's, I was just, I remember being amazed to wake up one day, wait a minute, you know, we're criticizing banks for not lending the money we gave them to keep in their vaults so they'd be stronger? I, how did this happen? I mean, she makes two very important points. Um, you hear a lot of political uh, complaint about the fact that banks have less loans outstanding than they did before. Well, you can't go through a major deleveraging of the system. Deleveraging means taking loans out. You can't go through a deleveraging and have more loans. It's just a contradiction in terms. Of course we need to deleverage, and of course their balance sheets should shrink because they will have they will borrow less money from other sources if they are deleveraging. That's a good thing. That makes them healthier, so they'll make less loans. So all this political kerfuffle about the fact that banks are lending less is silly. And the second thing is, when you give banks capital, when you give a financial institution capital, you don't lend capital. You hold capital. <laughs> capital is to be held. You use capital to go and borrow money, usually from depositors if you're a bank, but, but not always. That's your collateral. You keep it. So the fact that banks weren't lending the money that we were giving them, of course we weren't giving them to it, we were lending it to them, but anyway, the fact that they weren't lending it is, um, of course they're not. That's they weren't supposed to, and I don't know where this comes from. You get the, the, these, you get these political um, conspiracy, yeah. you know, these things, and then they become. Even the Secretary of the Treasury says, well, "We've got to get right. them to lend this money." Well, and, and you know, I think what happened is the credit crisis. Um, stabilized so fast that they could get away with switching, with bait and switch. At the time Paulson uh, was seeking that assistance from Congress, I mean almost white-faced, you know, literally white-knuckled, uh, at, at that time banks were charging, what was it, 14 percent for overnight repos? I mean, it, it was, there was some unbelievable rate at which a bank would agree to lend you money until tomorrow morning. Yeah, that was another bank, not yeah, you. Yeah, that was lending another bank money until tomorrow morning. They were too frightened and too frozen to even do that. So that's when uh, Paulson is saying, my God, we've got, to, we've got to restore the strength of these banks so they'll at least be willing to lend to one another. And that was the idea of, of infusing this capital in them, and then somehow it got morphed into, no, no, now they've got to be willing to lend to you and you and you and me. Um, I'm not sure how it happened. Uh, now, Thank do you. Any of you, this is lots of clarity. I mean, this is fantastic. Now, does anybody want to make any concluding uh, comments, remarks, something that got left out? Good night. <laughs> I can't do better than that. Thank you very much. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.